Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Shatran Mall. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Hiromu Nagahara about his book, Tokyo Boogie Woogie, Japan's Pop Era and Its Discontents, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2017. Professor Nagahara is an Associate Professor of History at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Welcome to the podcast, Hiromu. Thank you so much for having me, Shatran Jai. So our first question is always biographical, so I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you become a scholar of Japanese and East Asian history? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I uh, was born and raised in Kanagawa, uh, Japan, just south of Tokyo. Um, and uh, my parents still live in that area. Um, and, uh, you know, I had a, um, uh, I, I might touch this when I talk about my current project, which um, in many ways have, have more to do with my own family's history. Uh, but on my mother's side, I have, you know, uh, relatives who are uh, Japanese Americans who had uh, gone part of the family had gone to America before the Second World War uh, my mother's part of the family came back to Japan right before the war so hence uh, my you know me being born in Japan uh, but also on my father's side I have um, uh, family members who uh, had had connections with uh, English language studies and learning uh, even before the war uh, and so forth. So I think for that and other reasons, um, my parents had decided to send me to an international school uh, in Japan, uh, even as I had lived it. So I I actually um, uh, attended an international school from first grade on through high school, even uh, as I grew up in an otherwise Japanese family. but as I did that, um, you know, I was fascinated with history uh, as a little kid. I remember reading, um, I think it came out, a series that came out of Shueisha or Shogakkan. Uh, but there's a, uh, I think one of the first 
series of history books, quote unquote history books that I remember reading was the uh, uh, a manga series on Japanese history and world history. And I think that got me going on this very long journey of uh, just reading a bunch of history books, you know, at different Asian grade levels. Um, and it, I actually continue to primarily read in Japanese um, for fun, uh, which probably helped me actually keep up with Japanese language, even as I studied primarily in English um, in schools. Um, but uh, as I grew up, I think, uh, you know, I was fascinated with all kinds of histories, but especially uh, histories of culture, art, you know, different forms of uh, art genres, music, theater, movies. Um, and I think uh, while Initially, I think I was interested in, you know, uh, European history uh, because it was, you know, very exotic as someone who was who grew up in Japan. Um, I think it was during college that I became increasingly interested in history of Japan. Um, and I think that was in part because, you know, in college was when I first left Japan to study at a college in America. And then I also did a study abroad in UK uh, as part of that. Uh, but I think that gave me a sense of kind of a distance from Japan that, um, you know, helped me uh, look at and be interested in Japan uh, in a new way. Um, and I think one of the, um, you know, maybe I'll, I'll leave this when I talk a little bit more about the origins of the book itself, uh, but that's when I also started thinking more about, uh, you know, history of music and musical culture. Uh, but I think, you know, broadly sort of it was stepping outside of Japan that made me think more uh, critically, but in a more interested way about Japanese history and also uh, about how my own family's history uh, is uh, implicated in it. Um, you know, to give a very pointed example, I think uh, I grew up knowing and hearing some stories about my grandfather on my father's side uh, being uh, a survivor of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, uh, where he, you know, lost his parents and, and, uh, two of his uh, siblings in the immediate aftermath of that. Um, and so as I grew up with that story, I think I was, you know, there was always some uh, sense that this history was both too intimate and intense. Uh, and maybe that's partly why I also looked to histories of other places initially, but actually uh, in the college years, it was then that I think I began to re-engage with not just Japanese history, but uh, some of the histories uh, in you know different branches of my family. So that's, sorry, that's a really long way, long winded way of answering your question, but uh, that's sort of how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so I mean, that's that's really fascinating to hear about your unique family, your unique family history, and sort of you know I, I I sort of relate as someone who also loves history to um, your fascination with history from a young age. Um, uh, so, 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 so thank you for that. So, um, I'd like to next move to talking about, uh, this book, uh, Tokyo Boogie Woogie. So what is the genesis of this project and what do you see as its main argument? Yeah, sure. So, you know, as I was, um, studying in college, that's when I began to turn to focus more intensively on Japanese history. Um, uh, but in fact, even before that, I think uh, as I think about the college history papers that I, you know, research papers that I wrote on, uh, I remember, I think um, 
you know, when I was still, uh, I, I took a bunch of classes from um, medieval European history to Japanese history in college. And I think one of my first papers that I wrote on was about um, the sort of the history of the uh, the medieval Irish bard uh, who, you know, would, would sing um, songs of praises for uh, medieval Irish kings and so forth. And, and then I think I also wrote a paper about uh this fascinating uh medieval um or maybe renaissance era uh italian jewish um uh composer named salomone rossi uh who i believe lived in modena uh, or verona sorry um uh but this was about a a a you know a, a jewish composer who uh uh wrote religious music uh in the style of of renaissance italian music and so um i think actually you know i i had become fascinated in these stories of uh culture that is being produced and debated and thought about in these places of uh different communities different traditions uh different social groups uh interacting uh or being in tension, uh, different identities coming into uh, play, um, you know. So somehow, sort of the story of music and the story of, of different kinds, intercultural or intercommunal sort of uh, connections, tensions, etc. I think uh, came to be something that I be- repeatedly returned to. Um, and so, when it came time to uh, write my senior thesis for college, I ended up writing on. Uh, the introduction of Western music to the uh, national education system that the Meiji state was uh, starting up uh, in 1870s. Uh, and so I wrote a, you know, a thesis about that, and that was part of my graduate school application. And, um, and so I had, you know, I think I had a sense from the start of, uh, you know, my PhD program that, that, I was going to work on something to do with uh, musical culture or popular culture uh, more broadly. Um, but as I started to sort of learn more about, uh, you know, especially post-Meiji uh, Japan um, and the different kinds of social, cultural, political forces and developments uh, that took place, um, I think I became... Uh, you know, increasingly interested in this, the ways in which people not only made and consumed uh, music, but actually talked about it, debated it in in seemingly uh, very intense ways. Uh, And so ultimately, I arrived to this uh, particular genre uh, that I identify as uh, ryukoka, or popular songs, um, that... um, uh, that I believe, you know, uh, was a kind of common sort of category by which uh, a broad range of popular songs that were produced by uh, the recording industry in Japan from uh, the mid 1920s uh, to, uh, you know, into the 1950s, uh, roughly, uh, you know, were all categorized under this title of Ryukoka. Um, and I think I became just fascinated by how seemingly a very wide range of people were um, uh, both attracted to it uh, 
and were also repelled by it. Uh, and, and so uh, the book itself is largely about how and why people um, come to be drawn to this genre and, and why they debated it and especially criticized it. Thank you so much um, for for such for such a comprehensive um, view, uh, uh, so, such a comprehensive uh, outlook on the book. Um, so actually, um, I, I, some of my you've also sort of touched on some of the questions that I'd like to ask later. Um, so thank you for that. So, but before we go to that, I actually wanted to ask you a little more about the research process and um, what it was like to research for the book. So, what kinds of sources did you use? Uh, where did your research take you um and what was it like basically to research for this book yeah absolutely uh it was yeah i think um you know as with i think most any uh dissertation projects it you think that it's one thing when you start and then it becomes something else and then even after you finish the dissertation as you're turning it into a book it, it you know you start to actually gradually begin to understand uh, what it is that you're talking about and, and what it is that uh, you're arguing about. So um, I think I was broadly initially interested in uh, looking at and understanding various discourses that existed uh, in early to mid 20th century Japan uh, regarding popular culture and mass culture in general. Um, and so, you know, some of the scholars, um, uh, that I was inspired by, um, um, you know, especially uh, people like Miriam Silverberg, uh, who I actually had the fortune of meeting uh, very early on in my uh, graduate career, um, you know, in her book, uh, Eroguro Nansensu, about, um, you know, mass cultural discourses in, in the 1920s and 30s, um, really inspired me to take seriously, not just the different kinds of cultural products that were being uh, produced in that period, but also the way in which intellectuals of that period, uh, journalists, uh, government, you know, policymakers took those things, at least some of them uh, took those things very seriously. Um, And so a lot of the sources, you know, so what I ended up doing, I think was really scouring, um, uh, a lot of uh, primarily published materials, you know, um, uh, in in from starting from newspapers and major uh, journals uh, to um, trying to figure out uh, and and discover all sorts of minor journals and and forgotten books uh, on um, not just music but on film on theater. Uh, on different aspects of that, on uh, the social efficacies of uh, goraku, uh, popular entertainment. And so um, uh, for, I, I think, several years, I, I at least this is my recollection of what I did was uh, not a very um, targeted research uh, per se, but of kind of trolling and trying to gather as much and trying to comprehend as much of uh, what people said about popular culture in the, you know, in the, especially in the 19-teens, 20s and 30s um, and into the 40s. And then my research sort of moved farther out into the post-war era. 
Um, and then sort of gradually narrowing, uh, you know, the focus to this repeated discourse surrounding Ryukoka, uh, which I think, you know, uh, came to sort of appear to me as a large enough and and uh, heterogeneous enough of a cultural category that uh, actually attracted critics uh not just within the world of music making or or you know uh, musical elites, but actually uh, you know otherwise uh, journalists and and educators and government officials and activists uh, who were whose jobs were not actually primarily connected to music or music making, uh, you know seemingly being drawn to this discourse on this particular genre of music. Um, and I think, uh, so gradually, I think I, I focused on that particular set of um, discourse um, before, during, and eventually after the war. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that really comes across to me in the book that it's not just about the cultural products or like, you know, the, the music per se, but it's also about the discourses that the uh, music and the cultural products um, generated. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I think... Uh, there was a part of me that I think very early on wondered, okay, is this going to be about the product itself or, or something else? And I think uh, the farther I did the research, the more clear it became that the book itself was actually first and foremost about this discourse, right? About the fact that uh, despite, um, and this is what I write, I think, in the introduction of my book, uh, that despite the kind of, uh, you know, uh, democratizing potential of mass media for culture and and actually the democratizing intent to a certain degree on the part of the modern Japanese state uh, you know when it sought to uh, sort of foster a national musical culture uh, really from you know the outset of the Meiji era uh, but increasingly systematically uh, as compulsory education uh, is established and as music very gradually becomes established um, you know uh, that um, my I, I think I came to the realization that that uh, my project is really about um, how and why different people in Japanese society and especially among the educated and governing elites uh, came to think of musical music as a critical sort of, uh, front in 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 a in a series of culture wars, uh, you know that engulfed uh, modern Japan, and that uh, that a lot of their discourse ultimately seems to point to um, ongoing and and recreation of uh, various cultural hierarchies. Again, in a society uh, that was, uh, at least by some people, you know, uh, sort of hope to become more democratized culturally and otherwise, but nonetheless sort of seemingly some of those uh, efforts uh, appear to oftentimes recreate uh, either new kinds of cultural hierarchies or uh, sort of uh, reinvent the old ones uh, in a new historical context. Thank you. Um, so before delving into the chapters of the book, um, I actually had a question about the title. Um, so it's a very eye-catching uh, title, uh, Tokyo Boogie Woogie. So uh, what does this title r refer to and how did you come up with this title? Uh, 
Yeah, you know, I think um, if 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 this world was a uh, I don't know, I, fair is not the right word. Uh, if I if I had to choose a song that you know is actually most important to me in this particular book book project, um, I think there were two candidates. One was Tokyo Boogie Woogie, which sort of encapsulates, I think. Um, uh, you know, both uh, what was hoped for in music in, in that particular moment in the, in the mid-1940s when it came out. Um, uh, and the other song is Tokyo March, Tokyo Koshinkyoku, which I delve a lot uh, in the first chapter of my book as a kind of uh, embodying the nature of popular song genre. Uh, and so I think, you know, all things being equal, I may have chosen Tokyo March, but uh, Tokyo March you know, isn't in an English where it doesn't really convey that it's a song. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's obviously not known at all in America and it's, and it's almost forgotten in Japan uh, except for uh, some fans. Uh, and, and whereas, you know, Tokyo Boogie Woogie, I think uh, immediately conveys a sense, right? That this is about uh, uh, music. This is about uh, Japan. Um, uh and it's also, I think, uh, intriguing. Sort of, it, it creates questions of, okay, well, what is this exactly about? And I think that's where, uh, in some sense, you know, the the subtitle "Japan's Pop Era and Its Discontents," uh, you know, is arguably actually the main sort of highlights mm-hmm. the main thrust of what the book itself is about. That it's, uh, you know, as much or perhaps even more than the music, it's about uh, this particular decades in mid twentieth century Japan uh, when when people imagined, consumed, and critiqued this particular uh, cultural set of cultural products uh, and, uh, you know, saw in it both an embodiment of uh, various social ills and, and, and uh, for others, uh, an embodiment of the kind of hopes uh, that they had for their society. Oh, th- th- thank you for that. Uh, in fact, my next question was uh, going to be about um, the, the, the the pop era because that's part of the subtitle. Um, so, I mean, uh, the, one thing you note in the introduction is that you see this as like a, as a historically bounded phenomenon. Um, so, yeah. wh- why do you make that argument? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think I was really interested in um, is. Uh, that from the you know as and I was as I was reading up on Yukoka, uh I noticed you know one of the things that I noticed was that the terms with which these people try to talk about songs that were popular in Japan in a given moment actually had changed, um, and you know whereas in English we oftentimes use this sort of uh, catch-all term of popular music um, or pop songs. And of course, if you ask, you know, music historians, um, they would tell you that, you know, they actually know some of these different iterations of these terms have particular meanings and so forth. But I think, uh, you know, more recently, I think we've come to settle on this term of popular music to talk about the different kinds of sound-making practices, you know, of uh, amongst the people and um, for the people of a given time and place, especially in the modern era. Uh, but, you know, what I discovered from ni- late 19th century to into 20th century Japan is the fact that uh, people use very different terms. You know, um, in Meiji era, people talk about Hayari Uta, which <laughs> actually uses the same Chinese character as Ryukoka. Uh, but we're, you know, um, uh, I think, 
as I read it and understood it, it, it referred to something that was quite literally popular uh, in, say, Tokyo or Osaka or elsewhere in, in a given era. Um, and it was really in the 1920s that you start to hear this uh, term ryukoka with that uh, ruby attached to it. Um, and that's used for a while, but actually already in the late 1930s, you start to hear this word kayokyoku, uh, which I think becomes much more common during the post-war era to, to refer to um, sort of this large body of songs that are being produced by, uh, you know, the, the music, Japan's commercial music industry. Um, and, you know, at some point in sort of those decades, both Ryukoka and actually eventually Kayokyoku uh, begin to sort of uh, denote actually a particular subgenre uh, with an increasingly uh, distinct sort of musical style. And of course, this is this, I think this is more true for Kayokyoku, uh, which is oftentimes uh, associated also with Enka uh, in the post war era. Um, but those terms sort of come to connote, uh, denote particular subgenres in a world where you start to see uh, other, right, musical genres like uh, rock and, and jazz and so forth becoming much more. Uh, a part of the musical fabric of Japan and especially uh, consumers' habits and tastes. Um, but I thought what was interesting about Ryukoka is that not only was it popular in those early decades of 20s and 30s in particular, uh, but that was a period where the, the market was much, musical market was much less segmented. And uh, there was, I think, a room for uh, a role for a, this kind of catch-all genre to exist. Uh, and it's not that there weren't other sort of musical genres or musical sort of category terms that were used, such as, uh, you know, um, keongaku, which oftentimes referred to kind of jazz or jazz-inspired music uh, or dance, you know, music categories. Um, but... Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, Ryukoka does really seem to be used as the kind of predominant uh, stand-in for, for popular music, uh, both by the industry that was producing it uh, and by the consumers and, and, and observers alike. Um, and so uh, there seemed to be this interesting coincidence, both in, in the actual period when uh, these, this term Ryukoka was in currency, uh, with you know an actual form in which music and songs in particular were produced, controlled by the recording industry, distributed among people in a particular uh, through a particular channel, uh, and in a context where uh, you know, and I talk about this in my post-war chapters, where uh, the market wasn't uh, as segmented, and and the kinds of production method wasn't. Uh, transformed in a way that it, that it does in the post-war decades. 
Thank you for that. Um, So I I have more questions about uh, popular music, but there's another um, topic that you cover in the introduction in chapter one that sort of caught my eye, um, which is about how like Japan's encounter with Euro-America sort of led to music as this universal category sort of or universal cultural category sort of coming to exist. Um, so for listeners who may not be familiar with this, and it is something that you, you, you briefly mentioned earlier, like um, what was, uh, how did um, Japan sort of adopt or embrace like Western musical and cultural forms in the Meiji period? And uh, how did that lead to this era that you talk about, the pop era? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think music is uh, one of the various um cultural uh you know phenomena that uh meiji era japanese uh encountered and were uh you know in turns uh indifferent uh fascinated or repelled by them depending on um you know the forms and it came in you know uh when i teach my modern japanese history class i oftentimes use um you know the some of the visual images from uh various moments of you know japanese and and um encounters with america and and european countries and actually uh there's you know one set of images surrounding the uh the arrival of commodore matthew perry to japan and uh you know the the visual records of that period and i think also written records note that uh you know for example commodore perry and uh, or the, the crew on perry's ships uh put on uh you know, uh, what was then a very popular, uh, you know, uh, uh, minstrel show, right? A very mm-hmm. racist, deeply problematic mm-hmm. practice, mm-hmm. but one that was very popular in that era. And that was that, along with the military music of Perry, was sort of some of the first quote unquote Western music that the Japanese encounter. Uh, but then, you know, once, once Japan. Uh, is increasingly in in con- contact with with uh, those countries, um, you know, through things like the Iwakura Embassy, which took half of the Japanese government officials around the world, uh, and students are sent to European countries in America, uh, and you know, American missionaries uh, and others come to Japan. Uh, there's a kind of uh, flow of music actually that takes place, um, and and so I think some of the initial very early ways in which Western music come to Japan is through these kind of uh, institutionalized frameworks. So uh, military music is some of the first ones to come because uh, it was a necessary, it was deemed to be a necessary part of Western style military organization. Um, uh, You know, Christian uh, hymns uh, Mm -hmm. come into Japan fairly early on in Japan too, through these, uh, you know, through the activities of Christian missionaries um but actually you know the one that is perhaps most important to me is is, uh the introduction of western music through uh the compulsory education system and it actually um initially involved uh an american uh uh named Luther Whiting Mason, uh, who was actually based in Massachusetts, uh, who had developed a curriculum uh, for, uh, you know, uh, music education in um, primary school uh, in America. And then he was invited to Japan to develop uh, sort of a curriculum for Japan's 
um, system by the nascent uh, education ministry. Um, and in that process, they try to create what they call, what these government officials call national music. But for all intents and purposes, what they end up settling on is using basically Western musical idioms um, to, uh, you know, as the basis for uh, music education in Japan. Um, and it it's really, you know, later on that, and really, I think, uh, maybe, uh, you know, I, I'm not an expert on sort of post-war music uh, education, but my impression is that it's really in the post-war era uh, that uh, quote-unquote traditional Japanese musical culture begins to be much more systematically taught within Japan's compulsory education system, uh, whereas for a long, long time, Western music was really uh, the the main story. And that 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 is, uh, you know, a, a story that begins in the Meiji era. Thank you. Uh, I mean, I think I, I, the, the, some of the uh, topics that you just talked about, um, uh, the, the, the individuals and the you know, Iwakura mission. And so I think in, in the introduction in chapter one, you, you vividly ca- capture, um, um, you know, Japan's encounter with uh, Euro-American musical and cultural forms. Um, so in chapter two, um, you discuss um, censorship and the role of the state. And I think, as you said, like, you know, the, the critical reception of popular music and the discussions and debates that elicited it, that elicited, uh, that popular music elicited um, is a major theme in your book. Um, so why did popular music attract such strong or evoke such strong reactions from the state and various sections of Japanese public opinion? And what sort of relationship existed among these various groups like music critics, the recording industry, the state and so on? Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think those are th- themes that um, in, in many ways, actually, uh, chapter one and two uh, jointly uh, cover. Um, and so in, in the first chapter of the book, I actually focus less on um, state actors and actually sort of actors outside of the state. Um, although the def- definition of who's part of the state and not part of the state is a little bit tricky because, um, you know, as I just mentioned, um, uh, once the education ministry starts to introduce uh, music in in the national compulsory education system, that ultimately leads to uh, a creation of a national conservatory, which uh, actually, you know, um, uh, was the forerunner to part of today's uh, Gedai in Ueno, uh, which is still um, Japan's premier, you know, conservatory and art school. Um, but that leads to a creation in the Meiji and Taisho era of what, what could be recognized as a music establishment, right? People who are educated in the na- National Conservatory uh, or music critics who are educated in, you know, uh, at the Tokyo Imperial University uh, and else and other elite education inst- institutions. Um, you also see, uh, you know, uh, basically students who become Japan's educational elites, um, people who uh, go beyond the, you know, compulsory education into uh, the high, uh, the high schools, right. The, which was uh, already extremely limited uh, sort of venue and in a very elite place. Uh, you start to see um, aficionado cultures, uh, mu- Western music fans, uh begin to emerge in those places. And, you know, uh, this is at places like Tokyo, uh, Daichi, you know, Daichi Koto Gakko or Daisan Koto Gakko, the third 
high school in, in Kyoto. And so these kind of very somewhat rarefied spaces uh, begins to sort of foster these kind of uh, aficionado culture. And so it's really those critics who are who first react to the popular songs that are produced by uh, major recording companies like Columbia and Victor, uh, both of whom, both of which established themselves in Japan uh, around 1927, 
basically too risque or or uh you know valorizing uh sort of uh undesirable moral immorality um and so to some extent you know so the state is i think in a ways that it was more even more uh in an even more thoroughgoing way interested in in those kind of themes and in places like literature and film uh, and theater uh, sort of bring in a similar kind of mindset to the, to music. Um, uh, But then again, I think what I found interesting was that maybe that wasn't the only part of uh, the state, uh, you know, the state's involvement and at least a censor's interest in music. Um, But I'm not sure if we want to touch on that at this point. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Oh, actually, another uh, topic that sort of caught my eye in chapter three um, is that it was not just, you know, these the musical establishment of musical elite um, who were sort of participating in this war on popular music, but even leftists um, for, for whom cultivating a, a taste in Western classical music was important. So that, that almost seems a little counterintuitive because you might imagine that leftists um, may be more, um, you know, supportive of popular music as sort of, you know, some sort of um, crystallizing the spirit of the people or something. So um, did you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know, and I think, as you said, sort of, it almost seems counterintuitive. And certainly later in the post-war period, especially in the 1960s and 1970s, when there's a, a, a new left uh, discourse sort of that criticizes earlier leftist stance towards popular culture as being elitist, um, that's when you actually start to see leftist intellectuals, you know, valorize uh, Enka, uh, for mm-hmm. example, which was a popular music genre, you know, uh, that really took off in the 60s. Um, but in in the earlier decades, actually, you know, it begins to make sense more if you think about, well, who are the sort of the leftist um, pundits speaking into and on music? And these are, um, just like their right-wing counterparts, highly educated, university-educated, uh, cultural and educational elites of that time. Um, you know, people who were uh, involved in the proletarian music movement or uh, critics um, who uh, may or may not have been directly involved with uh, sort of those explicit left-wing movements, uh, but nonetheless had uh, Marxist or Marxian leanings, um, worked in, you know, various aspects of music production and music critique. Um, and, 
Uh, and so the people who were, I think, even in the pre-war era, there were people who had leftist leanings who spoke into it. And that actually emerges in some of the earliest debates uh, surrounding, you know, very early popular songs like Tokyo March. But it is true that it's actually in the occupation era when, um, you know, leftist intellectual and political activities are uh uh, become more safe, uh, become you know a- allowed under uh, Allied occupation reforms. Uh, that you actually start to see uh, some of these music critics who had already been part of the music establishment, like uh, Sonobe Saburo, who I look at quite a- in depth across several different chapters. Um, you know, who graduated from university before the war, uh, who almost certainly had uh, leftist leanings before the war, um, nonetheless turned towards a much more explicit analysis and critique of popular songs uh, based on a larger critique of uh, capitalist culture uh, and and the ways in which, uh, at least for Sonobe and his colleagues, they seem to be part of degrading and enslaving the consciousness of the masses, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to liberating it, and so at that point, actually, um, you know, it starts to make sense um, in part because of again the educational background of these people, but then they also make a kind of intellectual and political link between uh, the the music that was predominantly being produced by the commercial music industry much of it much of which was used um you know uh by the wartime regime to promote patriotic uh sentiment um and these leftist critics use that connection uh you know as a way of of discrediting uh the genre of popular songs uh, as a whole uh, you know, as well, pointing to, as it were, the sort of the wartime musical uh, collaboration. Um, but I think the larger critique actually also connects to the kinds of uh, critique of mass-produced popular music mm-hmm. that we see uh, in, you know, uh, other um, leftist intellectuals, and most notably, uh, you know, people like uh, uh, Theodore Adorno in Frankfurt School. Thank you for that. Um, so, um, actually, I, I had uh, two two questions that you could you could pick on uh, e, e, whichever whichever um, angle you'd like to take. Um, so, one is about the role of music in Japan's wartime mo- mobilization. Like, what role did music play? And then after that, um, um, you know, um, J- Japan, of course, is defeated in World War Two. It's occupied. Uh, by the United States. So what impact did the defeat, like Japan's military defeat and the U.S. occupation, what impact did this have on Japan's popular music industry and music establishment? Uh, Sure. You know, know, one of the things that I write about in the book is how um, from our more present-day perspective, we tend to associate wartime Japanese musical culture with uh, what people oftentimes call gunka, or military songs, mm-hmm. and oftentimes what people have in mind when they think when they think about gunka is uh, the kinds of songs that you see being blared out of those 
ultra right wing soundtracks uh, soundtracks <laughs> in that you might have encountered if you've ever visited Japan. These large, intimidating buses, either painted in all black or all white. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, I, my colleague uh, the uh, Nathaniel Smith, who's I believe is at Ritsumeikan, have written written more about uh, his experience of these right wing activists. Um, but. Uh, you know, a lot of the song that comes out of it are either these kind of very, you know, robust march, military march style music, or uh, the kind of melancholy, plaintive, um, people talk a bit, describe it as a sad, you know, oftentimes in minor key, uh, Enka style songs, right? About, uh, that sings about camaraderie, military camaraderie and, and some such things. Um, and I think people tend to associate sort of musical culture more with the latter, actually, uh, when they think about it from a present day perspective. And, you know, uh, you know, what I talk about in the chapter is that, yes, that's true. They actually use those music because, um, and those those kinds of sort of more again what we would now think of as enka style um, military songs were likely to, the the most popular kinds of war songs during the wartime era. Uh, not I think coincidentally because um, musically speaking they they drew uh, heavily from the most popular you know popular songs um, that you know I. I Musically speaking, I mean, even from the first popular songs in that genre, some of the more successful songs weren't sort of the explicitly uh, or thoroughly Western in style, but ones that sort of evoked, uh, you know, Edo period shamisen music and other indigenous uh, musical idioms and mm-hmm. and mixed it with Western instrumentations and so forth. So um, songs that were actually quite syncretic, musically speaking, um, which I think also connects to uh, the Enka in post-war era, uh, were the most popular songs, uh, as opposed to, say, songs that were thoroughly in you know jazz style or uh, in the mode of Western art music. Um, but what I also talk about in the book is how during the war, actually, um, you know, the most popular, con- uh, not sorry, the, actually the, the the kind of music that uh, some of the top leadership. Of, of wartime sort of musical propaganda effort. And these are actually people who, you know, were mostly basically leaders in the music establishment even before the war. So people, uh, especially like Yamada Kosaku, uh, you know, who is a national conservatory trained long and a very famous composer of Japanese uh, classical music world, um, you know, try to use the wartime sort of propaganda effort and state sponsorship as a way of promoting Western art music. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And and so they made these very famous patriotic songs like, uh, you know, there's a song entitled Aiko Koshinkyoku, The Patriotic March, which the state heavily, heavily promoted um, and was this kind of, you know, uh, very robust, you know, people people back then described it as sort of positive bright um you know in major key uh marching you know patriotic patriotic march song uh and you know i think people remember some of those songs as well but those are not the kinds of beloved post sort of beloved music that people recall when they look back at the wartime era 
uh, as they did, you know, in the post-war era with with nostalgia. And so there's a kind of um, a bifurcated, at least, a world of of wartime soundscape. And when the war ends, I, I think on one level, all of those things come to an end, and especially. Uh, in the first few years of the Allied occupation, in fact, uh, occupation censors uh, somewhat half-heartedly try to censor out what they deem to be the worst of um, militarist, quote-unquote, militarist popular songs. And of course, um, you know, the record companies stopped producing uh, uh, military songs that were part of the propaganda and military fever in the 30s and 40s. Um, and they began to sort of produce, uh, you know, non-military themed popular songs that were already popular in, in those same decades. Um, one of the new things that do happen, of course, in the post-war era, and this is what people oftentimes uh, think first, it are also the fact that there are songs like Tokyo Boogie Woogie, which actually draw much more explicitly from contemporary American musical culture uh, and dance culture uh, to, you know, and those things are also, uh, of course, popular, but they actually exist in a, in a fairly diverse musical world where, uh, you know, the, the recording industry is actually also producing as much or perhaps actually even more of those domestic uh, musically syncretic popular songs alongside with uh, newer kinds of American or American inspired uh, musical genres, you know, coming in. And um, in that process in the early fifties, uh, when radio broadcasting is liberalized and pu- private radio broadcasters uh, began to come on the airwave in Japan, uh, that really, I think sort of, creates a much more diverse soundscape that people can uh you know literally tune into uh and listen to and and that's when i um i think you do actually see a significant inflow of uh american uh and other foreign music into japan in, in the way that you didn't see before thank you so much thank you for such a um, comprehensive um discussion of you know the japan soundscape both in the wartime era and the early post-war years um so in chapter four you write in some detail about progressive activism against popular songs um, and especially highlight the role of an organization called the japanese society for the protection of children um so what are the some of the problems that these progressive intellectuals and middle class activists had with popular songs um and what does this mobilization against mass culture which is somewhat paradoxical because do they're trying to democratize culture by sort of mobilizing against mass culture what does it tell us about japan in the 1950s Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and it's a really um, fascinating period. Um, And of course, um, politically uh, extremely volatile when, um, you know, post-war political uh, arrangements were uh, really being formed, right? I mean, this is the decade when uh, the liberal and democratic parties come together to form the liberal democratic party. Um, this is also the period where the, you know, the socialist party, um, you know, becomes consolidated. Um, and so there's a lot of political sort of uh, battles and negotiations taking place on, on multiple levels in Japanese society in this period. Um, and I think one of the things that make it so volatile, of course, is this is, a decade in which 
uh, there is an ongoing U.S. military presence in Japan, mm-hmm. uh, and one that is actually on a war footing as as you know, especially at the beginning of the decade, war raged uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Um, uh, you know, and and carried on, of course, from the previous occupation years since 1945, um, and in that context, uh, leftist activists in Japan of various stripes of you know um ranging from some who are more sort of intellectually oriented but ones who are trying to massify intellectual culture like uh you know uh Tsurumi Shunsuke and his group the Shiso no Kaku the Science of Thought group um or the group that you just mentioned the Japan Society for uh the Protection of Children uh which is led in part by Hani Setsuko uh who um you know uh, I think at one point becomes a member of the diet um uh, but is uh, married to uh, Hani Goro, the famous uh, Marxist historian. Um, these groups, I think, um, you know, have a very broad sense of uh, both an opportunity to engage with uh, the mass public of Japan and also the urgency uh, that if they don't do that, that Japan will be uh, taken to uh you know places that that they would not want to go places of rearmament and increasing confrontation with uh the soviet union and the people's republic of china uh, a place where uh you know leftists and as they would as they considered it democratic forces in japan are being uh increasingly sort of on the back foot as uh reverse course in Japanese politics uh, seem to be accelerating. And so for a lot of them, I think um, music was just another front. Um, and children also emerged, emerged in that front as a kind of particularly, uh, as a population that was seen to be particularly vulnerable to uh, American-inspired, what they saw as militaristic uh cultural colonization um and, and so in that context where you know as i already mentioned there there was already a way in which i think wartime music industry was already partly discredited for their part in promoting wartime mm-hmm. propaganda um that that critique i think develops further into a critique of how commercial music uh, is seemingly also collaborating with uh, Japan's newly emerging conservative-dominated uh, political system, uh, and a uh, society and a country that is now seemingly locked into a military alliance with the United States, and and so in the course of the 1950s, these activists and especially JSPS actually uh, don't just target popular songs as being inappropriate for children, for being vulgar, but actually uh, as being the products of Japan's uh, military domination by America and the, at times, violent presence of the U.S. military uh, in within you know, different parts of Japan. Um, and so... Uh, in that context, these people point to songs that are being produced by uh, local chambers of commerce, like the one in Yokosuka, which uh, produced a song that 
uh, enraged these activists because it was a song that basically promoted, you know, uh, Yokosuka's sex industry that that primarily catered towards, uh, you know, American soldiers. Uh, or they also, you know, were deeply disturbed by uh, actually more broader developments in musical culture. Uh, you know, one example of this is when uh, there are famous singers like Eri Emi who uh, emerged in this period and one of Eddie's shtick was uh, you know being able to sing uh, American songs with an American accent and actually if you listen to Eri Emi's songs from that uh, period like the, one of the most famous one is the Tennessee Waltz Tennessee Waltz um, where she uh, actually not only weaves back and forth between uh, singing in English and Japanese um, when she's you know singing in in Japanese actually her the inflection of her voice is is at least uh, one music critic at that period or one social critic I think this is Minami Hiroshi who becomes known for as a you know uh, kind of a historian of popular culture later on uh, he actually, felt like she sounded foreign or she was affecting a kind of foreign accent even when she was speaking uh singing in japanese and sonobe makes a similar critique and so people like sonobe for people like sonobe and minami they also saw actually examples of japanese singers and i think they're feared by extension japanese listeners um becoming very directly culturally colonized uh, by this um, American presence. So there's actually sort of a lot of different kinds of concerns that I think coalesce uh, on the one hand in American cultural and military presence in Japan, and then sort of, uh, you know, move on to music as uh, as a manifestation of that. Thank you so much. That's really interesting. I mean, I, th- I think it it sort of captures um, something that I think you you try to do in this book, which is like music and like discourses around music and culture, um, as sort of providing like an avenue to thinking about Japanese politics um, and you know J- Japanese society um, and so on. Um, so in chapter five, which is, I think, the last chapter of your book uh, before the conclusion, um, you note that the emergence of, you note you discuss like the emergence of television and a variety of uh, changes that took place in Japanese society during the 1960s and 70s when this, when the contention surrounding popular songs sort of gets transformed, uh, where, you know, it, it sort of almost starts being looked at um, through the lens of nostalgia. Um, so w- how did Japanese society change during this time? Uh, so much so that, you know, the perception of popular songs changes um, and why are they no longer subject to criticism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think there are sort of several parallel movements that are taking place, um, you know, starting in the end of the 1950s and especially into 1960s and 1970s. Um, and so, you know, you see that, for example, uh in in the ways that 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 how songs are produced are transformed and so you know you had a, the the popular song era you know as we were talking about earlier that's you know that stretches from i think 1920s uh i believe and somewhere around the early 1960s when when the industry sort of the the industry the industry the main sort of actor that 
in producing and controlling sort of the entire process of musical production. So from, you know, choosing lyricists and singers, uh, you know, and composers to actually recording it and then pressing the record and distributing it. Um, that begins to sort of break up into different segments in the 50s and especially in the 60s. And so from, from the 60s onwards, you actually start to see uh, these companies known as production companies. And, you know, the famous ones are like uh, Nabe Puro, or, you know, even more famously, I think more recently, the, you know, the Janis Entertainment Group uh, with, you know, that was founded by uh, Jani Kitagawa and Meri Kitagawa, this, this you know, uh, U.S. raised siblings, right, who uh, actually used the post-war opportunity uh, of the occupation era. And uh, like many of these, actually, a lot of these cultural uh, producers and actors of this period. Um, but uh, these kind of new production companies actually began to, uh, you know, poach and and control sort of these talents, whether they're singers or composers or lyricists, um, and wrest the control over these talents uh, from the recording industry, the recording companies who used to monopolize these things. Um, and these production companies are increasingly, I think, connected to the emerging uh, first radio and but even more so the television com- television broadcasters who uh, feature the various talents right Tarento from from these production companies uh, and so in that process then the the recording companies lose their their you know monopoly over the entire process of of record uh, music and they're kind of rendered to these sort of dumb producers of you know of just the physical records um, as it were uh, and so that I think is one big change and quite literally the way that songs are produced and that leads to or is accompanied by you know the 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 proliferation of of various genres of mu- music that no longer can be contained in the catch-all genre of Ryukoka or even Kaiokyoku for that matter. Uh, and, you know, that's also because in this period, the the importation of, of music and musical records from outside of Japan becomes much more common and, and much more affordable to an increasing number of Japanese. Um, but that kind of change in music is, you know, taking place at the same time as there is a broader, I think, uh, demographic and cultural shift, right? Um, and I think on the cultural front, you, of course, in the post-war era, you start to see uh, the massification of university education, mm-hmm. and and so and in you know, and there is a you know as Japan's sort of perception that it is a middle-class country increases, and this really happens from sixties onwards when you know there's the um, uh, Ikeda's um, you know uh, uh, income doubling policy and um you know when 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 Jap- when japan's government turns its attention especially from 60s onwards from a you know politics of confrontation that dominated the 50s into one that that tries to sort of uh assuage and ease political tension and division in japan by simply increasing the economic pie um you know, and you know, as Japan's economy takes off, there is, I think, even as social unevenness and social inequality actually continues in Japan, there is nonetheless a perception uh, that Japan is increasingly a middle class country that is dominated by people who are mostly middle class. Yeah, and I, I think. Oh, no, please uh, go ahead. Yes. 
No, you know, I think so. Between that and between the kind of massification of education, uh, you actually start to see changes in critical discourse, right? And the political valence surrounding critical discourse. Where I think you know one of the things that I try to capture and argue for in, in especially in my earlier chapters, is just how profoundly and deeply classist a lot of cultural discourse is across the political spectrum. Right. And I think maybe even well into the 1950s when JSPS, JSPC, the, the Society for Protection of Children, um, oftentimes deploy what stri- I think what would strike us as fairly classist arguments against popular culture um, that, you know, I think what I see is happening in the 1960s and 70s at the same times as as the production, the way in which music production is changing is, is that is that very possibility of a kind of classist argument against um, mass culture becoming less politically viable, Mm -hmm. uh, less palatable, uh, even for the critics themselves. Thank you so much. I mean, as you were talking about like the changes in Japanese society, I was reminded of that famous survey when 90% of uh, Japanese people in that survey said that, oh, we belong to the middle class or something, that there's this big change um, in Japanese society. Um, so so thank you for that. Um, so of course, um, in the in, in the end of the book and in the conclusion, you sort of d- discuss like the legacies of Japan's pop era. And Japan is of course today a very different society from what it was in the 1960s. Um, um, you, you've had the bursting of the economic bubble, and you know um, what what some people refer to as you know the 20 lost lost 10 years, and now you and people are talking about the lost 20 years. Um, so, um, this is paradoxically also the era when J- Japanese popular music, which is, uh, or what, what we call J-pop has also become global and like Japanese cultural products have sort of, you know, are consumed all over the world. Um, so what are the legacies of, um, the, the pop- popular song era today and how do, how do how do genres like enka and j-pop and so on how do they relate to the legacies of uh, the the pop era that you discuss in the book yeah you know I, i'm not sure if there are sort of a lot of uh musical legacy per se um you know and i, I think uh you know this is uh something that uh christine yano uh uh you know who's a fantastic uh uh, ethnomusicologist and uh, you know recent president of uh, AAS uh, has written um, you know extensively on, but uh, you know in her book about Enka, she you know traces kind of the transformation and popularity of that genre uh, in post-war era, uh, and I think Enka is sort of one of the successor subgenres that kind of came out of the popular song genre, um, but you know J-pop and other sort of um, newer sort of domestic categories, which are, I think, far more directly in- influenced by, um, you know, foreign music that came into Japan, especially American music that came into Japan after the war. Um, in some sense, I think I find it difficult to find a kind of a direct musical legacy per se. Um, but I think, you know, what I try to capture, especially in the conclusion of the book, is is perhaps maybe not so much about music per se, but about questions that I think the popular music era raise about uh, the possibilities for the limits of cultural critique um, in contemporary Japan. And, 
of course, you know, different kinds of cultural critique and criticism, especially, you know, uh, in um, kind of more elite intellectual realm continue on. Um, But I think, you know, one of the things that's remarkable about the popular song era was that it was a period where there was a fairly broad consensus on, on different kinds of cultural hierarchy. Um, And, um, you know, whether it's the primacy of Western art music as quote unquote, real music or quote unquote, good music, or, you know, the, the, the fact that there was a relatively small community of intellectuals who shared a kind of similar educational history that went from high school into the university, which again, were, you know, limited to very few people. Um, going from that kind of period into uh, an era where, you know, intellectuals and non-intellectuals who are debating culture, who are consuming culture, uh, come from a much more broad background. Um, and uh, thinking about what cultural critique looks like in, in that kind of era um, and I think you know I don't really go into describing what what takes place in part because I, I that in some sense uh, that's a completely different book and that's you know I, that was beyond my ability when I was writing this. I think you know sp- specifically focusing on sort of the kind of culture critique that problem problematizes mass culture, uh, whether it's music or anything else. Uh, you know what I try to point to is that uh, it's actually hard to find one that is sort of as robust in some sense and as consistent uh, as was the case of the kind of critical community that existed in the era of the popular songs. And, and, and so I kind of end on a very ambiguous note of, you know, uh, wondering, um, you know, will changing political or economic or social environment uh, bring a new kind of sense of uh, new kinds of critique. You know, if if people, when people are no longer able to convince themselves that they are they are all middle class in a middle class society, will that bring back the kind of uh, classist arguments uh, and frameworks that that had existed uh, in the popular song era uh, in in cultural critique? Um, and I I'm not so sure about that. I think one of the things that was you know, striking for me, at least, even into the nine two thousands and two thousand uh, in the last couple of decades, is just how um, certain uh, established producers of culture, like the television uh, industry, um, and you know the production companies that go with it, uh, remain fairly powerful. You know, Japan just went through an election um, uh, this last week or this last weekend. Um, and I was struck, uh, you know, by people's comments online about how, it, you know, uh, some there were some critical comments about, wow, you know, the people who are emceeing uh, the election specials on uh, te- major television journal- channels are not journalists or political experts, but entertainers, you know, people from Yoshimoto or, or you know, comedians. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm kind of struck by just the, some of the durability of these um, large-scale, uh, you know, cultural forces. Um, at the same time, though, you know, I think, and this this was not something that was in my view when I was writing this book, um, but, uh, you know, 
as as in America and in Japan, you do sort of on some level also see kind of uh, political and cultural debates taking place uh, increasingly online on platforms like Twitter or whatever else. Uh, and so, you know, I think I am I, I remain curious to see sort of how these kind of platforms and communities, uh, uh, you know, produce um, uh, not just opportunities for cultural critiques, but how they they produce uh, or enact, um, you know, the author- authorities authority by which people sort of justify their their critique of culture and so forth i'm sorry this is kind of a stream of thought but it's you know it's it's um an ongoing interest thank you so much i I think your book um sort of creates new frontiers for the study of japan's cultural history so i mean i hope somebody else writes the book about you know the the successor to um tokyo boogie woogie by discussing some of the themes that you just discussed and i mean i think your book i mean people from many different disciplines like cultural studies people who study music or literature or like discourse and of course historians and so on um would i think gain a lot from reading your books i hope more people uh, read your book um so thank you for taking so much time, Hiromu, uh, from your busy schedule to talk to me today about your book. Um, but before uh, before we end, I wanted to ask you what you're working on right now. Um, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so one of the big lessons from writing Tokyo Boogie Woogie was uh, just how strongly and for how so so for so long how japan's uh intellectual elites uh seem to be committed to this idea of western art music as being the standard right of good and real music and how that was shared again across the political spectrum and so uh i'm increasingly interested in more broadly about sort of tracing the roots and location of these um, you know, uh, the ways in which uh, different kinds of cultural and artistic practices from Europe or and or America were internalized. And, you know, whereas Tokyo Boogie, Boogie is primarily a book about discourse, um, I think I'm actually interested in increasingly sort of at, on a more micro level understanding how many of these uh Japan's educational, cultural, and political elites, and these sort of community of elites, I think, intersect in many ways. How individuals within those communities were shaped, uh, were uh, were in ways that they internalized these kinds of foreign cultural influences. That at times, and you know, we don't really talk about Japan as being oftentimes as being a place that was colonized. Although you know, I mentioned that in in connection to the post war, even in today's conversation. But you know, in ways that at times eerily resemble a kind of asymmetrical colonial dynamic. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm actually specifically looking at the experiences of uh, Japanese expatriate communities in places like London or Paris or New York or uh, Shanghai uh, in the, uh, you know, pre, primarily in the pre-World War II decades in the first half of the 20th century. Um, and looking at sort of individuals and their the ways in which they practice uh, culture and art and connect to other non-Japanese uh, elites, uh, especially in various, you know, uh, host countries in Europe and uh, in America. And um, 
how they sort of how in that process they uh, envisioned themselves and transformed the, transformed themselves into cosmopolitans. Uh, the 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 depths and the limits of that attempt. Um, and I think as part of that, I'm actually especially becoming interested in uh, the place of English language among many of these elites. Um, and so even in, you know, even in Tokyo Bukuriki, I, I actually talk about one Japanese uh, student, uh, Kikawa Chokichi, who was one of the first uh Harvard Japanese graduates of undergrad uh, at Harvard College, um, and he talks about his discomfort 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 with music in in that I talk about in Tokyo Boogie Woogie, but actually his his English language autobiography also touches on his connection to uh, English language and how the process of studying English and being educated in English transformed him in very fundamental ways, uh, and so I'm actually interested looking at other. Japanese and subsequent Japanese elites in subsequent decades who uh, go through similar experiences of, of having long-term uh, you know experience of residing in foreign countries uh, and especially uh, becoming sort of not just anglophones uh, but at times uh, anglophiles uh, themselves so uh, you know broadly speaking that's sort of uh, where I'm heading towards um, and uh, I have a working title for the project called uh, An Empire of Anglo- Anglophones. So uh, we'll see where that goes. Thank you so much. Uh, I mean, I think English has a very interesting and unique place in Japan society. So, I mean, I really look forward to um, reading your uh, your next articles and books. So, so thank you again for taking so much time. Um, and, I hope you ha- and I hope you have a good day. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk to you, Shatranjay. Thank you. Bye-bye. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.